We're talking about um, the doctrine of God in here. If you were not here um, last week, um, a subject that I just love. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but um, a subject that I um, think is absolutely amazing, and I'll tell you where we're going to go. we got the doctrine of God, then we have the doctrine of Jesus, then we have the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and then we have the doctrine of the Trinity, <laughs> of the three uh, together, and uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we're just looking at the, the doctrine of God. And when you, you look at the Bible, you say, well, what's the Bible about? The um, Bible has some uh, um, information in there. It's got some good rules in there. It's got some, even some good laws in there to make us alive as, as, as people. But uh, what is the, um, the Bible about? And uh, do you know what the Bible's about? The Bible's about God. <laughs> the Bible um, is about God and who God is. God wants to be known. He wants to be seen. He wants to be recognized. We want to know who, we, he wants to give us a revelation of who he is. And if you look at the artisticness of how the Bible is written, it should even blow your mind. I mean, just give you an example. The Bible is 60% narrative. And what I mean by 60% narrative, it's 60% stories about people. Well, if you look at God, who says, I want people to know me. Again, he has to speak in our vocabulary, so he's going to watch life, go on earth, and tell stories, and we get to observe stories in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament of how God responds to human beings. And when we watch how God responds to human beings, guess what takes place? We get to know how he's going to react to us. That's why it's 60% narrative. It's not explaining let me explain to you who I am. And you have this whole book of explaining to you who I am. It's like, let me show you who I am. Give me, let me give you an, a, an example of how I behave, how I love, how I give, how I have grace, how I have justice. And the Bible, when we open it, it should just be opening up the mind of God. I mean, it's like, whoa, this is how God functions. And that's what we should be looking for in the Bible. Because if God is functioning the way he's functioning with David, he's going to function the way he's going to function with me um, as well. And then you see the stories of, um, you know, the statements in, in Acts. It says, you know, David's a man after my own heart. It's like, why is David a man after God's own heart? What did David do? And then you read the Psalms and you understand why David's a man after God's own heart because he's just like, God, I just love you. Nothing else I love but you. And you see this relationship that is, is very, very strong. So I look at the relationships, oh good, I want to jump on board with that. So the reason why I'm giving this introductory is because the Bible is about God, and he wants you to understand them even though you can't grasp him. And I would say that any God I can grasp, I would not worship. And I'd say that that's also the problem that we have in America, is is we look at the Bible and say, if I can grasp it, I will give you the size of God and explain it. And if I can see it and I can hold on it, then I would believe it. Well, it's like any God that is that small, small enough for my mind to understand, is way too small for me to worship. That's why we get this huge God, massive God, beautiful God, with the understanding of him speaking in our language so we can see his beauty, his strength, and his goodness. 
So we're talking about the doctrine of God, and, and, um, and we're going to um, do this week, and then we'll also talk next week against his nature, because we want to understand um, his nature. And so when we look at that, um, there's multiple ways to understand it. He speaks through creation, was, which was last week, um, but we're also going to talk about him speaking through created things, but he also wanted to talk about how he even speaks through his names, and I just want to do it really fast. Just look at the names of God. Elohim, it means what? It means strong one. So he doesn't say strong one, it's, it's the name, and then the name gives the definition, this is who he is. Well, I could look and say, well, God's a strong one. Adonai, what is Adonai? It means Lord. And, um, and what does Lord mean? It means master. It means that you submit in his direction. That's what it means. Um, and then you go through all the different names that are given, most high, strongest one, the strongest one who sees, the almighty God, the everlasting God. And these are just a couple of names that just unfold who he is, just on the dynamics of giving us these names. So you can study in any commentary. It says, you know, I wonder what God looks like. Oh, well, let's just go through all the names that are even mentioned in God. You can even Google it. Give me all God's names. And then if you go in God's names, give me the definition of God's names. And then you'll get all of them. And you say, oh, this is what God looks like. It just gives us a fast glimpse and a picture of what he looks like. But I really want to focus on God's nature is revealed through created things so we can completely understand him, so we can understand him. Again, he speaks way over, doesn't speak way overhead, but he is way overhead, but he tries to bring it down to um, our level and to our understanding. Now, we're not going to work a lot with notes. We're going to use the notes that are on the paper. So in other words, we're going to work through paper, not the screen, just let you know. There's going to be a couple passages on the screen just because they're not in your notes. So if they're on the screen, they're not in your notes, but if you don't have paper, then you're going to really struggle because um, we're not going to use that um, a lot. And the reason why is because we want to go rather, rather quickly through a lot of this information. And the reason why we're going quickly is because we just want you to get a taste and a flavor of who God is through a metaphorical use of creation that he uses. So God is compared to what Isaiah 31.4, a lion. <laughs> um, so when God speaks, you know, this is what I'm being compared to. This is what I'm describing myself as, a lion. Do you understand what a lion is? If you understand what a lion is, then you can even study the aspects of God. Look at Isaiah 31, 4, and it's going to be on your screen just by looking at this. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over his prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against him, he is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do the battle on Mount Zion and on the heights. He is phased by nothing. We know that lions are phased by nothing, but all of a sudden he moves us into Scripture and says, I just want you to know I am not phased by a pandemic that takes place. I mean, we can put it in the context of everything. I am not phased by what is happening. I'm not phased. I have the strength. I have the majesty. And he's using the understanding of a lion because what happens is a lion carries the majesty of the jungle. I have the majesty, I have the strength, I have the beauty, I have the respect, therefore I'm going to compare myself as a lion, and that is who God is. Genesis 49 says this, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on your neck of your enemies, and your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah, 
You return from its prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down, like lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes who it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. So what's going to come? This is taking place in Genesis. And it's going to come through this tribe of this person, Judah, and uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he's describing who Judah is and what's going to come your way. And what's he saying What's going to come your way? A lion. <laughs> a lion is going to come your way. In other words, he's going to come your way in respect. He's going to come away with your majesty. He's going to come in the way of, of, a, of a savior. Everything that a lion looks like, we can just um, expect. We can just expect. Now, all the way through the, the Old Testament, they're talking about, you know, Jesus that is coming. And when they're talking about not Jesus, I will not say Jesus because the word not Jesus is yet. We're talking about the Messiah who is coming. The Old Testament, they're waiting for this Messiah. And as they're waiting for this Messiah, what are they waiting for? They're waiting for, you know, the lion of Judah coming in his majesty, coming in, 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 his, in, his, in, his, in his power. And, um, and then all of a sudden Jesus came, and then he came as the lamb before he came as the lion. And what does lamb? He's speaking of who he is. I am a lion. The first I'm going to be a lamb who will be sacrificed. And then I will come in the end days who will be a lion so I will be able to judge, conquer, and kill. You see how it works? We can understand who he is in regards to being a lion. I can also look at the cross and say, well, he was a lamb that was slain, but that was a start of his majesty. In fact, that's the power of his majesty. That's even the power of his glory. And he's doing what? Speaking through animals. I mean, he says it in just a couple words down. He's a lion, but he's also a lamb. A lamb that is what? Led to the, sl- led to the slaughter. Oh, he's also a hen. A mother hen does what? Puts the babies underneath her net, he, her, her wings. He is protecting people. So I, I'm a lion, I'm a lamb, I'm a hen, I'm the sun, I'm the morning star, I'm a light, I'm a torch, I'm a fire, I'm a fountain, I'm a rock, which means I'm just a solid foundation, a hiding place, I'm a tower, I'm a shadow, I'm a shield, I am a temple, and a temple is described as this is where God rules, this is where God is at, and we see that as the temple is built, but then all of a sudden Jesus came and said the temple is in the human hearts where God dwells. So what he's doing, he's describing himself in the process of using these, these, these metaphors. And these metaphors are extremely, extremely strong. And one that I did not mention, because I just want to mention you know, a little bit more, is an eagle. He says that um, he says that he is an eagle. Well, what, is it, well, what does that mean? I just want to pull out this passage because what we can do is we can grab these metaphors and we can study them to get the personality of who God is because he's all of them. This is what he's saying. I, I, I'm, I'm all of them. This is how I work. This is how I function. I want you to know. You know these. Now study them and you can see it. Deuteronomy 32.11 says this, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on his pinions. It's like, okay, this is exactly what God is like. Like an eagle that does what? Stirs up his nest. How do eagles function? You know, when I was 
before I was a preacher, I'm like, you know, how am I going to have any information to speak? You know, how, how am I going to come up with words to say? You know, it, you know, we could just find this passage in particular. Let me tell you about God. He is like an eagle that stirs up his nest. I know an eagle. This is what an eagle does. An eagle stirs up his nest means he ki- takes the young and he kicks them out of the nest. Now, what happens when he kicks the young out of the nest? Is a nest, the eagle, baby eagle does not know how to fly. I mean, isn't that inappropriate? He kicks the eagle out of the nest, and the eagle does what? Falls straight to the ground. Falls straight to the ground. And as the eagle falls straight to the ground, he is expected to open up his wings. But what if he doesn't? Oh my goodness, we see it. Like the young, that he then comes under and he spreads out his wings to catch them. (laughs) He catches them, and then what the eagle does is the eagle then flies up to the nest and puts him back in. And then what does the eagle do? It kicks him out again. <laughs> it, it, it kicks him out again. And then after the eagle kicks him out again, the, the bird comes flying all the way down to the ground, and I, I, the bird's got to get frustrated. I think the bird's got to get frustrated over this, this, this process. Um, but sure enough, he goes all the way ground, and if he doesn't make it, then the eagle flies right underneath him, right underneath his pinions, he, he lands it, and then he brings him up again. And he does it, and he does it, and he does it. Why would he do that? Because he's teaching the baby eagle how to fly. He's teaching the baby eagle how to be strong. He's teaching the baby eagle how to perform as an eagle. So in this passage, we can say, you know what God does to us? Is he stirs up our nest. The life that is never disturbed by God is a dying life because you're never going to fly unless it's disturbed by God. And people go, my life is being disturbed. In the process of my life is being disturbed, God just probably does not love me. God probably does not care about me. Even in the process of this pandemic that has taken place, all these things are happening, and as all these things are being happening, God would not be in control if they weren't happy. But God's like, hold on a second. Christians need to fly. Christians need to fly, therefore I will kick you out of the nest on purpose. We're getting to know God's personality. I will kick you out of the nest on purpose so you can actually spread your wings and be stronger. You know, there's a story about this, this little cocoon. And in this cocoon, um, this little child was, this child was watching this, this cocoon, the, the butterfly actually push against the cocoon to try to break it loose. And as the butterfly was pushing and pushing and pushing, it was really, really struggling. In fact, it was struggling in such a way that the, the child says, you know, I need to help him out. Um, if he's going to make it, he's probably not going to make it if I don't help him out. So what he did is he took scissors and he clipped both ends of the cocoon. And all of a sudden, the butterfly broke out. And then the butterfly died. Why? Because he wasn't strong enough. He needed the process of being broken to have the process of strength that was required of him to even survive. So when we, we look at these things, we get so surprised by what is happening on this, this earth, and, and we get shocked, and we say, God is not on our side, and God is not for us, and is, is God sleeping? Um, look what's happening to the church. I mean, what, what, what's taking place is God saying, I want my church to fly, and I'm going to kick you out of the nest for the purpose of making them strong. For the purpose of making them strong. In fact, if you look back at history, the church grew when? The church grew when it was persecuted. That's when the church exploded. 
If you look in America, or not in America, but you look on this planet right now, where is a church growing more than any other else on the, on the planet? It's growing in China, underneath ground. <laughs> They're being persecuted. And as a result of per- being persecuted, people are observing that these people are living for something, and it's big. Therefore, they're jumping on board with it. America, you know, it's like, hey, you know, we're living for something, and it's, you know, we're living for this God, and as long as we're comfortable, he exists, and he's on his throne, and everything's taken care of. But when things are getting a little uncomfortable, all of a sudden, I crash with the, the uncomfort. And then even then, the people could look and say, well, you know, are you really standing on this, called a rock? Are you really standing on this powerful lion? Are you really standing on this God? I mean, is he really real? God describes himself through these metaphorical statements. Number two, Scripture, or, um, scripture uses um, human, uh, it's, I said number two, I put down, it's number one for me. Is it number two? What is it on your notes? It's, it's number one. Okay, perfect. Scripture uses a human body as metaphorically to describe God's relational positions, activities, and appearances. You want to get to know God? He's going to speak in our vocabulary. He says, I'm the bridegroom. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that in the, the book of Ephesians as we're continuing to walk through the whole piece of marriages so we can understand God and who God is and his, his grace. And, and it even unfolds the entire relationship. Our relationship completely unfolds our relationship with God in the process of marriage. So he says, yeah, I'm the bridegroom. He even says, I'm the husband. He even goes as far as to say, you know, I'm the father. Oh, I'm also the judge. I'm also the king. So I'm the bridegroom. I'm the husband. I'm the father. I'm the judge. And I'm the king. And I'm, I'm all those. And I'm also a man of war. I'm a builder and I'm a maker. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm a shepherd. And then we can understand what's going on with the, the, the process of being a shepherd. And then he says, what? He says that I am eyes. Your what? Your eyes? I just want to look at Psalms 11.4. And I know I've jumped around a little bit, but I'm going to run out of time real fast. Psalms 11.4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. Oh my goodness, he has eyes. He's watching me. He's examining me. He's a has nose. Explaining, this is what I do. I have the, the process of a, a nose and I understand it. I'm a mouth, I'm a lips. I'm a tongue. Now, is he a body? No. He's just saying, this is, I, I've got all of these. I'm a spirit on top of that. We know that. But he says, I'm a physician. I'm a neck. I'm an arm. I'm a hand. I'm a finger. I'm a heart. I'm a foot. God's face is, is his countenance. So we have all these different things that describe things that we understand. And since we understand these things, God says, oh yeah, I do it. That's how, that's how I function. That's that's who I am. Now, a lot of this just comes naturally. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, God sees. Oh, yeah, of course, you know, God hears. But, you know, knows? God has a sense? I mean, I didn't pull that verse out to explain it. But he has all these different things. I'm a finger. I'm a, I'm a heart. I'm arms. Scripture uses, number two, Scripture uses human actions to describe how he functions. It says, God is knowing remembering, he's seeing, he's hearing, he's smelling, he's tasting, he's sitting, he's rising, he's walking, he's wiping away tears. Psalms 94.8, it's in your notes, it says, pay heed, you senseless among the people. 
and when you and, and when and when will you understand stupid ones he who planted the ear does he not hear he who formed the eyes does he not see he who chastens the nations will he not rebuke even he who teaches man knowledge so if you just look at the pieces of it got the same senses that, that, that we have. We can understand that. You hear the word that, that God is spirit. Well, I can't explain that, but I can also explain a spirit that does have the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling. Yes, God's beyond our mind, but he's explaining himself in a way that I can understand. That's why the Bible is so pushes us and, and guides us uh, towards faith, because we can't grasp spirit, but we can understand what spirit is when he describes it in such a way. Number three, Scripture uses human behaviors to describe his character. Just behaviors, joy, grief, anger, love, hatred, wrath, compassionate, truthful, holy, forgiving, all these things that we understand as human beings, God says, well, this is what I am. So when he says, I am merciful, uh, what does that mean? We know exactly what it means. And the reason why we know exactly what it means is because there's a lot of times I don't want to have mercy on people. And when I don't want to have mercy on people, there's a grudge that takes place that says, you don't need to forgive. You don't need to forgive. You don't need to forgive. And there's a frustration and then there's a tension that's inside of me. Why should they have mercy? Because they haven't earned mercy. They don't deserve mercy. And they should not have mercy. And I will hold that grudge forever, as long as I live. We understand mercy, and we understand the pain even of getting it. And we understand the resistance of giving it. We understand the dynamics of if we do hand it over. But God says, I'm a God of mercy. And I have done what? Forgiven you when you shouldn't have been forgiven. Therefore, do what? Forgive your brothers. All that pain that we have, that frustration and that tension and that, um, that rejection that we have of not to do it for this person, God has the same for us. <laughs> there was no righteous, not even one. There's no one who does good, but I did what? I had mercy on them, and I paid the price. And the price is even a lot heavier for him to receive us than for us to receive others. That's why God doesn't sit there and apologize and say, I want you to forgive, and I'm really sorry for giving you that command. He doesn't say that. The reason why is because he forgave you. <laughs> the problem is that we don't think of ourselves as somebody that really needs to be forgiven like we need to forgive our other people, but yet we're tenfold worse. So see this, this, this behavior that God is, is calling us to do. He does himself. <laughs> He does himself. So we can completely understand it, uh, who God is, because we do understand all the emotions and feelings that are in the Bible. And then other pieces of how, you know, even God works in regards to emotion is he then gives us stories as well. And when we give us these stories of how um, he relates with people, we can even get a grasp of his emotion. And just one really fast story that, that he gives in the book of Genesis uh, was the story with Abraham. And Abraham a son, and uh, he could not have a son. Sarah could not have a son uh, for some time until she had a son in her old age, and he was a son that was supposed to be the heir of, a, of, of being a, Abraham being a father for many, many nations. So this son was the one that was going to be an heir, 
And then all of a sudden God says, I want you to take him to the mountain, Mount Moriah, and I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham walked with his son to the mountain, and God gave him instructions that you need to sacrifice your son there. And so as you read the story, you feel the emotions of a father. You feel emotions of a father. In other words, I can't do this. I'm given a command that is, that is not even um, healthy, not even, a, not even it, it, it just sinks deep into my soul that I, it cannot be done. Now, is the story saying that we need to sacrifice our kids if God says sacrifice our kids? No, that's not what the story says. What the story says is, do you understand that the emotion of a father goes through when he puts a son on the altar and he's going to sacrifice it when it should be the answer in the emotional process of doing it? And then all of a sudden, God says to Abraham, stop. And he says, don't, don't sacrifice it. And then they found a ram. And said, there is your sacrifice. Put the ram on the altar. What's that story pointing towards? The story is pointing towards an emotional father that had to do something very, very difficult. But Abraham was rescued. He didn't have to do it. But God did it. Because that ram symbolizes Jesus Christ. Here I am the father and I will put my son on the altar and I will sacrifice him so you can do what? So all of a sudden, you could live. Do you see the, the power of those stories? The power of the stories is to wrap us up into emotions, to give us an understanding of what God the Father went for the process of our salvation. We say, well, Jesus, you know, he did it all. God the Father did nothing. No. God the Father paid a price that I would not want to pay in a sense of offering their child even before himself. A huge, huge price. So that's what these stories are doing. They're wrapping us up into emotions to give us an understanding of exactly who God is that loves us. So these are areas where you can understand his nature. And then really quickly, I want to go through the areas that's going to move into a much more thicker um, and dense that is beyond our mind. It's God's nature is revealed through incommunicable attributes. Incommunicable is un communicatable. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I can't, I can't communicate it. You know, in other words, it's something that's it's beyond our mind, but God wants you to know it. Yeah, just relax. I'm, I, I'm beyond your mind. So I can look at these incommunicable attributes that he does not have in common with us, which was incommunicable beings. I have no in common with us, but God still wants us just to know it. So he's given us this huge revelation through these creative things, but then he's going to just say other things that are just going to blow our mind. And, and here's one. God is spirit, meaning that he is invisible. Well, let me describe who God is. <laughs> I can't describe to you a spirit that's invisible. I can describe to you that God can hear, that God can smell, that God can see, because he's described that to me. But then he just gives this line, no one has ever seen God, but yet God is more alive than you can possibly imagine, even though no one has ever seen God. See, so he is going to give you the stuff that you can understand about him, but then he's going to say something that you just, you just can't understand about him. And so I'm going to explain to you the invisible God. I'm, I can't speak. I don't know how to explain to you the invisible God. And if I didn't, I feel like I did it successfully. I did it extremely unsuccessfully because it's not there for us to understand or grasp. It is just there for us to know. God is eternal without beginning or end. 
Again, we think God is only big as we can imagine. And he gives us this, com- this comment that I am eternal. Everything that we have ever seen has been what? Has been created. So we cannot grasp the concept of God always being. And for a lot of people, that's unacceptable. <laughs> Just unacceptable. So they write a whole new religion because they, they, they can't, they can't ex- ex- accept that. And what that is, is that's pride saying I'm more powerful than God, and if God does not fit into my box of my mind, then I won't believe in him. But yet the whole driving of the Bible is that you need to believe in him. You need to trust that when the Bible says God is eternal without beginning or end, he is eternal without beginning or end. Even though you can't grasp it, just relax and worship him. <laughs> just relax and worship him for it. God is omnipresent in space and in time. In space and time, omnipresent mean everywhere. Now you've got a whole bunch of issues that are going to pop up. Was God in hell? You know, God's presence in hell, is that, is that, is that, where, is that where he's at? So then you've got all these, these things that are getting popped up. Psalms 139 says 1 through 8. Oh, Lord, you search me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from far. You discern my going and out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. What's happened is not one drop of the presence of God is out of anywhere. His presence is everywhere. His manifest presence in hell is his face that is pulled away, but his presence is there. He knows exactly what is taking place there. God is omnipresent in space and then also time, meaning that as soon as time started, we get on this clock and we think, well, is God on this clock too? He must be on this, he must be on this, this clock. Um, well, how does God look at it? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how he looks at it. He, he's God. I just accept him for looking at it the way that he, he looks at it. I mean, he had a plan, and for 3,000 years the Messiah wasn't there. So in that plan he was patient, and then the Messiah came, and then one day he explains the future. So he just knows everything. He's not worked by this time, but yet we are driven by this time, but we can just relax it. He's just walking with us in time, but he's not on time, but he's, we're walking with us, and we can go back and forth. We just don't understand it. We can't, we can't grasp it. We cannot, we cannot um, conceive it, and that's we just roll back and say, you know what? God is on his own time, and I don't know what it is, so I'm just going to relax and accept it and praise him for it. Number four, God is immutable, devoid of change in being, perf- um, in, in being perfections, purposes, and promises. There's three reasons why this is um, extremely important. If we are going to change, it would be for the better or for, be for the worse. So if God changes, what is he going to say? I need to change because I made a mistake. <laughs> So you can look at the dynamics of him making these statements and we can understand the dynamics. Thank you, God, for never changing. Because just because you never change means 
that you don't make a mistake. It means that you did not mess up. Number two, he changes, uh, this is just not in your notes, but just looking at the, the, the reasons why this is so important. If he changes his mind, it is overrelated to information that has come to light. This can't happen because God is omniscient. So he, if all new information comes, then he would change. No, he's not going to change because new information is not going to come because he knows all information. So we can play with it a little bit to say, God, thank you for never changing because as a result of, of you never changing, I can live secure and live on this, this rock that you say that, that you are. Number three, the third thing why this is important is because everything we see changes and we need the stability. We need to be resting on a God that never changes, that is perfect, that his purposes and his promises are strong and secure. That's exactly what we need in this world. And God says, just want you to know you have it. You have it from me. Number five, God is infinite without limits other than the ones he puts on himself. So then we get the comment, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift? I mean, that's, you know, I, I mean, that's a question that you can ask. And it's a question that comes from the ignorance of the mind to ask that stupid, you know, even of a, of a question. But he's infinite without limits, and he can do absolutely everything he wants except what he himself chooses to do. And if he chooses to do it, it will never happen. And do you know what Scripture does all the time? is it actually bind, he, God binds himself. It's crazy. I can do absolutely anything, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to bind myself. And he does it all the way through Scripture, many, many times. I want to give you one explanation of him doing it, and he puts a limit on himself, and it's in regards to um, a covenant with Abraham. Now remember, God can do absolutely anything, but what is he going to do? He's going to make this covenant with Abraham. A covenant is a signature that says, I am bound to complete this covenant under all circumstances. Therefore, it will always happen. Therefore, I will give it specifically to you. There's a crazy passage that's found in Genesis during the process of making this covenant. And uh, in the process of making this covenant, they did not have um, it's not a signed contract. You don't do a signed contract to make a covenant back in the time of Abraham. They were uh, more of a visual, a visual kind of people that would make um, a public display that I will promise this will happen. So what they did is they, God says, I want to make a covenant with you, therefore do this. This is a covenant he wants to make, Genesis 15. He took him aside and said, look at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. I am going to make this promise and I'm going to sign it, not in ink, but sign it the way that we sign it back in your day, which is a theater in public so everybody knows that if I break this covenant, I will then be held accountable to. So this is what God said to Abraham. So the Lord said to Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon, Abraham brought all these things to him. He says, cut them in two and arrange the halves, the opposite of each other, the birds, however, he did not cut in half. 
The birds of prey came down on the carcass, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into the deep sleep, and the thick and the dreadful darkness came over the earth. You read that and go, what in the world is he talking about? God says, I want to make this covenant. Go get a heifer. Cut the heifer in half and split the heifers. And we look at it and go, that doesn't make any sense. And the reason why it doesn't make any sense to us is, but it made complete sense. The reason why it didn't make any sense to us is because we just signed for a covenant, but this performance carries the weight of a covenant. In fact, this is what they did if they wanted to make a covenant. If a king conquered a nation, what would the king, what would take place? King conquered a nation, and those people would then come and be a part of the new kingdom. But as they are part of the new kingdom, they had to do this performance. You would cut heifers in half. You would cut the goats and you cut the rams, and then you would split them. And all the people that were now going to be on your side, that were on the other side, are then going to walk through it. And when they walk through it, the statement that everybody is witnessing, the statement that everybody is observing underneath this covenant, is that if they break the alliance of their new king, this is exactly what's going to happen with them. They will be what? Cut in two. They will literally be cut in two. It's not a signature. You know, we just do the signature. But back in this, this is exactly what they're doing. So that's what Abraham said. God wants to make a covenant with me. And then he says, go get the goat, go get the heifer, go get everything, and cut them in two. Now Abraham knows exactly what's going to happen next. You know what's going to happen next in regards to Abraham? He's going to walk down them. And when he walks down them, he knows that if he disobeys God, he'll be cut in two just like those heifers. He'll be cut in two just like those goats. So Abraham goes, okay, thanks God, appreciate the covenant. I cut the heifers in half and I'm ready to walk down them. And then God does something, the most miraculous thing you can possibly ever see. And you see it at the end of the passage. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and the thick of the dreadful darkness came over him. All of a sudden, he just went in complete daze, and he just fell back. That's what happened to Abraham. Remember what he's supposed to do? He's supposed to walk through it, because he has a new king, and there's supposed to be a covenant made with God. He's supposed to walk through it. Instead, he falls back. And when he falls back, what happens? Genesis 15, 17 says, When the sun had set, the darkness had fallen, and the smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and then passed between the pieces. What happened? Abraham all of a sudden fell back in the process of this covenant, and then all of a sudden this firepot, smoking firepot, the blazing torch, in Hebrew, it's the same thing as the Shekinah glory did what? just walk between the cut heifers. And as he's walking through the cut heifers, what is he saying to this world? What is he saying to Abraham? I mean, they're making a covenant. He is saying to Abraham these words. If I do not commit my promise to you, God is saying this, I don't even want to say it. If I do not say this, make this promise to you, may I, God, be split in two. God is now binding himself to this promise in front of Abraham. So aggressively and so powerfully that he says, it will not be broken. The most radical thing that's ever taken place in Scripture. Because why would God do that? But I tell you there's something else that's, that's even more radical than that. And the most radical thing is that who did not go through? 
the co- in, in the process of the covenant. Kings never go through. I mean, the kings just don't go through. But who did not go through? Abraham didn't go through. God went through, and Abraham did not go through. It says just on 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give you the land. Well, wait a second. The king goes through, and the person doesn't go through. What does that make? What kind of statement is that making? That making the statement that Abraham, if you don't keep the covenant, do you know what's going to happen? I will still be cut into. This is a beautiful gospel message. God's taking complete control over our salvation. He is walking through and saying, I'm the king of kings, I'm the lord of lords, and I'm going to make a covenant that will never break. And guess what? You're just going to sit back there, and you're supposed to keep the covenant, but you can't. Therefore, I will send my son, Jesus Christ, and I will die in your behalf and your stead. We say, God can't bind himself. God binds himself in Scripture. And when you hear these words, it will be a moving statement to say, oh my goodness, this is who God is? He can do absolutely anything. He's without limits, without bounds, and yet he's tying himself on our behalf, making commitments, making covenants, so we can live. What we do is when we read the Old Testament, when we read these, it should shock us. Because what does it give? It gives the personality, the focus, the vision, and the mission of God. Again, it's not about Abraham. Abraham was the loser that did nothing. I'm the loser that does nothing. You're the loser who does nothing. But yet we worship a God who does everything. And he could do anything. Instead, he lays his life down so we can live. Just gives us an understanding of God, these Old Testament stories. Number six, God is incomparable as nothing compares with him. I'm just going to move rather quickly. God is unfathomable. Again, you can't explain it. You can't, you can't conceive it. You can't understand it. He's, infallible, uh, he's um, unfathomable, and you just accept it, and you just worship him. But then you put it in the context of salvation. It's like he's unfathomable, but still he does, he does what? Number eight, God is sovereign, being accountable to absolutely no one. Um, what does sovereign mean? The best way to describe it is, is um, through R.C. Sproul, he, he gives us an example of a coin. And he says, you know, me being a human being, I'll take a coin and, and I'll flip a coin. And what happens is that coin turns in the air, and when that coin turns in the air, it hits the ground, and it bounces up, it bounces over, and it lands on one side or the other. And since I do not... Um, comprehend or even understand the dynamics of what's going on. I use ignorant words like saying it's a 50% chance of it being heads and it's a 50% chance of it being tails because I can't figure it out. So I flip it, it goes 50% chance, 50% heads, um, 50% one way or the other. But let me ask you a question. Is that the way it is with God? Does God flip the coin and then all of a sudden, well, it's 50-50% chance? No, it's not 50-50% chance. In fact, does God figure the coin out and it goes up and it turns and it goes over and over? Is he figuring out the thermodynamics and the density of the air to make, see if, what size it's going to land on? No, God's not figuring that out. Well, then how does God work? God says, heads, because I want it, heads. He says, tails, because I want it, tails. So no matter what happens, he says, this is what I want, therefore it, it happens. Now, that's beyond our mind. 
Because then we so a whole bunch of different questions start to ask, and all of a sudden we get, oh, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? So, so you can't understand it. You can't understand it. We're going to talk a lot more about the sovereignty of God as we're studying God, but just relax and worship. Don't fight. Relax and worship. Number nine, God is omniscient, knowing all things, including present and future. Number 10, God is holy, being without sin and being without flaw. God wants to reveal himself. (laughs) He wants to say, this is who I am. And every time you open up the pages of Scripture, guess what you get to see? The Scripture and the Word shouting a statement, this is who I am. Open up your eyes and see me. The Bible is not about us and what we need to do. The Bible is about God and who he is and this awesome message that Jesus came, he died, he rose, and then all of a sudden his spirit lives in us and then comes out of us. That's how God works. That's who God is and that's what the Bible is about. Um, Questions, 11.10, I think that we'll probably, we'll do one question. (laughs) All right, yes. Uh, we got a microphone coming. We want to get you on the, the microphone. Sorry, I, I'm supposed to go fast so we can ask questions. I'm sorry. You talked about um, Moses. I was wondering about Isaac. He must have been 20 years old. He was bound at the time. Um, what was going through his mind, do you think, as far as his beliefs? He questioned, where's the sacrifice? Mm-hmm. And he was told not to worry about it. Mm-hmm. But he had to have some kind of belief that was a 20-year-old taking on a 120-year-old, and yeah. he was bound. I was yeah. just questioning that. It's a very, very, very good question. I'll tell you, scholars go different directions. <laughs> I'll just tell you with that. And, and, and this is where I, the direction I would go, is that I believe that it is a message that is given between God and God's son. And I think Isaac was 20 years old and could have overpowered his father, but I think Isaac was also submissive in a way to it. Um, and the reason why is because I, I believe that, well, Jesus was. It, yeah, he was, the one, he was the one promise. He knew he was the one promise, and I believe that he was uh, submissive to enough of, of, of being. Because he asked the question, you know, where is the sacrifice? God will provide the sacrifice. Well, yeah, we just want to let you know that you're now the sacrifice, but it doesn't say that, that Abraham says you're now the sacrifice. It all of a sudden gives a blank on what takes place. And then all of a sudden Abraham was bound, uh, or Isaac was bound. I mean, but I also can't say that, that Abraham didn't take a branch and hit him over the head and knock him out because <laughs> it doesn't say it. You know, I can, I can make things up inside of it, but I would say that Jesus laid down his life and, um, and that I would say that I think it might be in connections with that. Um, but that would, be, that would be my guess. Good, good question. Appreciate that. All right. Next week, I'm going to try harder for questions, all right? I'm going to give you guys more time. Sorry to keep on talking. So, all right. So you can save a question for next week. Um, you guys are dismissed. Thank you so much for coming.